Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, with a returning guest, Mr. Bill Michaels. We've all been reading and experiencing impacts with supply chain, supply chains, global supply chains. What's it all mean? What's ahead? And we have the foremost expert with us today to talk about that. Bill, it's good to see you. I hope you've been keeping well during all these turmoils and troubles. Yeah, it's keeping me busy. That's a good thing. I would imagine. Bill, you know, it's been a while since you've been on, but do you mind kind of just going over a little bit of your background, where you're from and where'd you go to school, a little bit about maybe what your professional work has been like? Sure. Happy to do that. Yeah, I started my career back in the 70s as a, as a uh, materials management supply chain trainee at Smith Corona Typewriter. So I uh, worked in every area of the supply chain, logistics, planning, purchasing, and uh, eventually ended up in my career there as the director of R&D planning. So my job was to change the company from electromechanical to electronic. And then we went into the printer business and they exited the printer business. I left Smith Corona and I went on to Boise Cascade in a purchasing supply chain role. And I was in charge of four paper mills and was recruited back into the parent company of typewriter business to trade commodities and food. I graduated from RIT in uh, Rochester, New York, and I got my MBA from Baldwin Wallace uh, University in Berea, Ohio. And I'm certified in procurement and supply chain by the Institute for Supply Management and the Chartered Institute for Procurement and Supply. And for our listeners, viewers, and readers, Mr. Michaels is widely quoted and widely published and commentary, so you'll find him out there. Let's just jump right into it. So, Bill, it seems everyone, every place, they're talking about supply chain. The President of the United States mentioned it. Or the supply chain. Or supply chains. So, today, what is the supply chain? Where was it? What's happened? How it can be remediated? What one can expect? And, you know, maybe, Bill, if you'd be willing a little bit into your crystal ball, into what actions might be taken and when those changes will be evident. And as always with uh, Bill, we will have some great education. And I'm going to guess some policy ideas as well. So let's go way back, pre-pandemic. It seems like uh, forever ago, roughly. It seems like before that, that the supply chain was this delicate and maybe tightly woven set of you know machinery and information tools that would move goods and services across the globe. That's really accurate. It was moving, but there isn't a lot of agility or flexibility built in a lot of the supply chains. A lot of the supply chains uh, resulted from people chasing low-cost labor, running to where the low-cost labor was, and really kind of thinking nothing wrong with finding the low-cost labor, getting low cost, and shipping from one point across the globe. And also, when they were doing that, they were looking at just-in-time delivery. So very low supplies at the local manufacturing or distribution point, true? Absolutely true. So everybody was looking for keeping their supplies as low as they can, making sure that the ships were great. They would come in on a regular schedule for six, eight weeks, depending on where they were coming from. And the supply chains were plugging along, but they still didn't have a lot of resiliency. They still were pretty open to some problems. So I think the first problem occurred when it was first noticed was when we had the uh, earthquake in Japan. 
And what happened was a lot of the supply chains were immediately affected. So we couldn't get glass for our cell phone screens. We couldn't get uh, Ford had a, a problem where it had a pigment and they couldn't get pigment. They didn't paint trucks. I mean, there was a videotape for playback on sports and they couldn't get their videotapes. They're all wiped out. So it was the first awakening that something was kind of wrong with the supply chain. And then that was followed by floods in Thailand where printed circuit boards were impacted and integrated chips were impacted. People started really getting worried about their supply chain. And then the U.S. government came along and said, we're going to have this tariff war. We had our tariffs going in. China put its tariffs in. And people started scrambling, saying, we can't be here anymore. We can't do this anymore. And they were looking for any place to put their materials. So it started way back. I even remember Bo Anderson from GM saying, everybody has to be in China. My suppliers all have to be in China. So we moved to low-cost labor. And we created a situation where, you know, we're in one location. It's only one place to get it. Very few redundant facilities. And, you know, uh, things just started to blow up when we started getting the tariffs. Today, the manufacturers, the auto manufacturers can't get enough of those integrated trips for the orders that they've got. We've got grocery shelves empty or, or lower selection. Ships are parked off of California's coast. Trucks are idling in wait. And now we've got international policies, crises threatening basic goods. And I'm thinking of the medicines and the personal protective equipment from China and energy from Russia. You mentioned the trade policies under then President Trump with the tariffs. And it was subject to a lot of you know news coverage and bluster, but it wasn't clear until today that you actually weighed in on what actually changed. Did the subsequent administration from President Biden reverse any of this, or did they double down on it? I think they made it worse. As we got into COVID, we saw China shutting down its docks for several months, not having people go to the docks. And then we get a policy that puts a lot of money back into the economy. So we had a lot of Fed stimulus and a lot of loans. People were making more money on the stimulus than they were prior to the stimulus. So they were pretty happy and they were buying things. They were buying cars, they were buying homes, and they were buying a lot of things. And we just didn't have the labor to start producing and keep producing those things. So we saw, you know, no capacity. Factories didn't have enough people to, they were, they were trying to spread out and manage slower production. The logistics supply chain really broke down. We don't have any truck drivers. People don't grow up and say, I want to be a truck driver. And we're not encouraging them. We, we're saying, hey, we want everybody to go to college. So we, we're hurting in all of the trades and things like truck drivers. And when we, we changed our rules, we actually took some of the trucks and truck drivers out of circulation. So we have a breakdown in the logistics supply policy. We had too much Fed stimulus going in, people creating lots and lots of demand, and we were caught by surprise. But one thing, Rich, you, you like talking about policy. This is a quote from Jerome Powell, our Fed chairman, saying it turns out it's a heck of a lot easier to create demand than it is to bring supply back up to snuff. You think? And look, I've got many friends that do the honorable job of driving trucks and nothing comes to us without trucks. They all knew that. It's also my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the state of California has outlawed trucks that are any earlier than 2010 and mm -hmm. also said you couldn't be an independent trucker. I don't know if that's 100% accurate and if that is having an impact on the clogging of the ports, and if so, how much? There's a lot of regulatory issues on trucks. I mean, when they went to automatic logging, a lot of truckers left the system. 
And in the 2009 recession, a lot of people left because there was no demand, so the trucks were shipped off to China. So we see a lot of issues with truckers. It made me think really hard when we were told by the current administration that they're going to solve the problem and work 24 hours a day. Well, they were, but you don't have any trucks to pick up the materials. So the stuff was packing up in neighborhoods and docks, and you can't even find which container's yours, which causes shortages everywhere. If you think about what's happening to manufacturers. I think about the automotive industry, as you said, they don't have any chips. They're reducing the features on the car and they're shipping cars without chips and waiting for the dealer to get the chips to put them in, the non-essential chips. I work in the home building industry and the average lead time on an appliance is somewhere between 10 and 12 months. Windows are seven months. Garage doors are probably four months, five months. So you don't have any AC, you don't have any windows. So I've known a couple, I've been watching the home building industry and they've had to restate their earnings at least more than once because they can't get the labor and they can't get the materials to finish their communities. So they're not going to hit their profit plans. And so no new housing coming online. So it kind of explains why there's a shortage of existing homes and at higher prices. And they really can't get them done. So if you have to wait 12 months for an appliance, if you, if you take out your appliance now, it's going to take you a while to replace it. Yeah, I like to barbecue as much as anybody else, but I still want a stove in my house Yeah. <laughs> before I move in. So we've got this policy-driven issues with the supply chain, and then the pandemic hit. Why did the pandemic hit so hard? And what were the worst effects? These examples are mind-boggling. I mean, I think what happened is, I mean, we shut down our our industries for a while, and it's not as easy to start them back up. So let's take the food industry. We closed all the bars, all the restaurants. We stopped the food service. Most of our meetings and our events were all gone. So farmers were plowing the crops back into the field and they had pictures on the news of people throwing milk back down the road. And so to get it started up again, there's a lead time. You got to grow the crops, get them back into the into the system. So you don't come back as fast as you did. And for all those uh, companies that reconfigured their factories to accommodate social distancing, they don't have the productivity they once had. Put that together with materials they can't get. Uh, at one point, I read a, an article in the Wall Street Journal where Polaris was uh, making the what they could make based on the parts that they had. They weren't running to a production schedule. And so you, you look at that, all those things together, and I think we're compounded again now. Only 28% of the people that uh, were in New York City offices are coming back. They're only 28% right now. And so you got the great resignation. People like living at home. They like being independent. They're finding ways to earn their, their living by small independent businesses. They're not coming back to work. I've seen some great writing on this of late people talking about the laptop elites and the people that are in the practical side of the economy. But it can't all be cyber because we still need a loaf of bread and we still need Kleenex and all those things that are actually in the physical realm. And now on top of this, we've got a war and quite frankly, a possibly expanding war in Europe. The Russian stock market is down 33% between February 16th and February 25th, and it's been closed ever since. The ruble is down 25%, and it's been down some 35%, but oil's gone up 22%. European natural gas up 100%, wheat up 40%. Corn up 14%. And we've got Ukraine being a big exporter of corn and wheat. What's happening and and what might occur? This sounds pretty ominous. Between Russia and Ukraine, you got 29% of the global world production on wheat. You also have oats, rye, 
barley, all of those food stocks are out. The Germans stopped making cars because of the metal components coming from the Ukraine. So that metal production stopped, and those parts productions from a low-cost country have stopped. So we're starting to see the impacts. And you know, I don't know what the solution are. You still don't have enough capacity now. We're running short on supplies, and um, to shorten it up some more is going to be more of a, a disaster. And I don't know what's going to happen or where that's going to go. As a person that's traded commodities in the past, is there any capacity for food grains elsewhere in the world, United States or South America, any place that might be able to fill the gap a little bit? I think you have to have the farmers plant, but that crop cycle is a year. You're a year out on whatever you do because you've got a crop cycle. I mean, once commodities go high, people plant. I mean, so if the commodities go high enough, it's it's to their advantage to plant, and uh, and they'll, they'll take advantage of those high prices, and then if then they'll overproduce, and the, and the commodity will start to go down again, and then things will balance out. I always was, were amazed at some of the commodities. One of the commodities I was amazed at was tomatoes. So I used to buy them for a major manufacturer, and this year the price is high. So next year everybody grows tomatoes, the price falls, and then the following year nobody plants tomatoes, and then the price goes. It's on that kind of cycle. So you're on a commodity cycle where if the price is high, people will plant, you'll get production, and then it'll, it'll, they'll overproduce, and then the, the market will fall, That's a, and sometime during the cycle. It sounds like we're just in for a, a wild ride and that there's going to be new problems coming up because of actions and reactions. Well, the one thing I think would help, and I'm probably alone in this because most, most economists and most politicians say it's not, but an interest rate, uh, rate change, which will slow down consumption, because we've got supply and demand out of balance. So we need to slow down consumption to be able to put things back in balance. Right now, we're not doing that. And we're running at, what, 9% inflation? Inflation's hard to contain. The Fed came out at first, said, well, it's transitory. And they said, never mind, we're not using the T word anymore. It's difficult to wring inflation out of an economy, particularly when you've had both fiscal and monetary stimulus. There's a lot of money floating around in the economy. It's got to go someplace. So, Bill, when I think about where we might go from here, we've heard President Biden and others in elected capacities asserting that the supply chain's being mended. How true is that? And is that oversimplifying that it's, quote, being mended? I don't see it being mended. I still see shortages of material. I still see lots of consumption. I still see labor shortages and the inability to you know, manufacture. So I don't really believe it's being mended at the moment. It's going to take some kind of stimulus to start mending it. Is that ability to get that supply up to demand, is that more a function of government policies being weaned off from pandemic, or is it more of adding stimulus or incentives for people to get back to work? I think it's a step change. People were very comfortable working in, in a virtual environment. Things were normalized in a virtual environment. I can tell you, I'm never going to get on a plane and travel two and a half, three hours to do a one-hour presentation. I would have thought nothing about that prior to the pandemic. So, you know, you, you got travels down. Travel's going to stay down. I mean, people will go on vacation, but I don't think the business travel is going to reach the level that it was once was because we're able to function effectively. The technology wasn't there before the pandemic, but it's there now. So I think that that's a big change. And I, I think that, you know, the way business is done is, is a big change as well. People are building these virtual relationships or may, they're working online. Major contracts are getting done. But still, we got a lot of people that enjoy this and, and are not going to go back to an, an office environment again. 
And those are, are changes that we just can't calculate yet. You know, I don't know, maybe we turn those office buildings into housing and, you know, get there some way. I wouldn't want to be in a commercial real estate business. No, definitely. Um, maybe a warehouse or something. <laughs> there you, you know, go. But not, not an office building for sure. President Trump, when in office, was talking about building in the USA. Uh, Joe Biden saying building in the USA. Seems that's a fairly popular refrain. Is there any substance to it with either the current president or the recent past president or, or perhaps any time in history? Are we doing anything to actually stimulate building in the USA? So when we discussed earlier in the conversation, the fact that people were in these low-cost locations shipping from one place in the world, I think the light bulb that goes off is that's an extreme risk. You can't stay one place. So I think the thinking has changed to, should we have duplicate manufacturing facilities in the regions where we sell? There's a reshoring component. I agree, they're going to bring them back. But let me let me say this about that. GE brought its, uh, when it was GE before it sold to hire, brought all of its appliances back, but they spent $1.9 billion automating the factory. So you don't have the numbers of people going back to work. But what we are getting is, you know, robotics that are, are um, never get tired. They work 24 hours a day. Uh, if you go to a McDonald's, you're finding these automatic machines where you put your money in, you pick your menu thing. They're, they're replacing people. The Japanese have put in a pizza manufacturing machine that takes the order from the Internet and builds the pizza. So, you know, you start thinking about how we reshore. And even in the home building industry, you're seeing people look at panelization. They're not going to build stick build on the on the lots anymore. They're going to drop a panel in and quickly build a house. And they're going to build it in a factory with fixtures and uh, robots that don't get tired. So I think if you look at the change, I do think there's a degree of reshoring, but I don't think it's reshoring to this extent that it was where we're going to produce millions of jobs. That is the best description of the interwoven economy that I've heard and I, and I read and, and listen a lot. There's one other thing, Rich. If you start to think about what companies are doing, if they do reshore, take Apple, for example, they've replaced Intel with their own chip. They've gone from deverticalization and outsourcing, which was the mode in the 90s, to vertical integration again. If you look at Amazon, yes, it's a retail company, but it's a distribution company too. It's got its own planes, trains, trucks, uh, delivery trucks. So you're seeing a movement back into vertical integration where they have control over these things. Indeed. And that harkens back to the, you know, the days of the Ford Rouge complex. Rubber, glass, steel, all made there so that a car could be manufactured from raw materials. Bill, when you think about this supply chain and getting product to market. And we had Robert Greenfield was just on our show talking about you know, the empty shelves in Australia. That was clearly his biggest worry. What's your greatest worry when you think about, you know, like what could go wrong next? I think about that move to automation and, you know, we're replacing a lot of jobs that were done by humans with machines now. We've got artificial intelligence. We've got you know, artificial intelligence with conversational backgrounds that are answering phones and doing things. And I think there's a big social problem that we haven't yet addressed. You know, we're hoping for the jobs to come back and we're hoping for people that can do those jobs. But we don't really have uh, the skills for the new technology. We don't have the skills that we need to. We don't have the tradesmen. We don't have the, the skills. So as we move into a new world, I think that's what bothers me the most. And I think truer words were never spoken that having that craftsman, that human creativity 
it, we're chasing this goal of consistency. And in, in many places, that's great, right? Better form and fit. But also now you're seeing advertisements for law enforcement robots on the financial channel. And, and you see them patrolling parks and such. You're going to have very consistent law enforcement, but it's a little eerie that you're not interacting with another human being, but interacting with a machine. Bill, on the other hand, what gives you the greatest cause for optimism? If you were looking forward and saying, you know, if we do X and Y, maybe we get a better outcome. The one thing about our country and our people is innovation. We can really do anything and we can really move the technology forward. We can really build new products and continue to innovate. And I think that that gives me a lot of opportunities for the future. But I think, you know, we have to grow and encourage innovation and encourage people to be innovative. I agree with you because that's always been the thing that's gotten the United States from one dilemma to the next wave of prosperity. So imagine this, President Biden summons you to come to Camp David and he's got secretaries of energy. He's got his whole cabinet there. And they all turn to you and say, Mr. Michaels, what ought we to do? And they said, the floor is yours, sir. What would you, and let's say they have the chairman of the Fed there too. What would you recommend? I think one of the things we've got to recommend is that we start to put the supply and, and demand back in balance so we get our economy back in balance and, and start moving the, the labor force. I think we have to look at what industries are their opportunities to grow and look at some of the older industries that are, are not, are not going to make it. There's a lot of things we can do in energy. We, we went from an energy exporter now to, again, an energy importer. So we, we look at how, how, do we, how do we get back to where we were where we were exporting and, and really thriving on, on our energy business. You know, you'd have to look at how can you get to sustainability, but you can't get there overnight. I think you have to have a good plan to get there. And I don't think we have that at the moment. So it sounds like you've kind of blended a little bit of what we might frame the Green New Deal for sustainability moving forward, but also perhaps early abandonment, too early abandonment, of some of the energy independent policies under the prior administration. So it doesn't sound like the Democrats or the Republicans have this right at this point. I don't think they do. I mean, I, you know, I'm looking for leadership in, in, in Washington and I, I don't see a natural leader that'll, that'll take us out of this, uh, out of this. And, and, you know, as long as we're, we're divided into two camps and we're not getting anything done, and we're not really working on um, these kinds of projects. I don't think anything's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, if we, look, if we can't get food supplies reliably, I don't know that people are going to care much if it was, uh, you know, party A or party B that was more or less responsible for it. Bill, this is, has always been a great conversation. What did we not cover that perhaps we should have discussed today? No, I think we covered a, a wide range of issues with the supply chain. I think we need leadership. We need, you know, fiscal leadership. We need responsible leadership. We need maybe to pull some of our business leaders together and really work together to, to make something happen. But if we don't have policymakers that work together, we're not going to have anybody else working together. Any thoughts about what would be a great policy and what would be a disastrous policy? I haven't really thought about that, Rich, but we need to get things back on stream. We need to look at where is the right place to be manufacturing things. We need to get back into some manufacturing. We exported some industries. You know, if you think about it, we exported the electronics industry. That's gone. It was gone. The testing's gone. The people were gone. Another one close to you in Detroit was the tooling industry. 
there's no more tooling industry in the United States. We have to go export, go get our tooling because all those craftsmen are now gone. They're out of the business. They're no longer there. We don't have a tooling industry and we're vulnerable when we don't have a basic industry. So we want to make sure that we try to get some of those things back. I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, industrial arts education uh, are essential uh, with incentives to keep that on shore. Bill, as we wrap up today, any closing thoughts for the listeners, viewers, and readers of The Common Bridge? The final thought would be that we we really want to look at getting our industries back up the stream. We need to figure out how we're going to solve this labor problem. The labor problem is not going away. Uh, it, it's continuing to get worse as uh, as the baby boomers come out of the economy and some of the new people are in there. We don't have the training or we don't have the support for them to get to where we need them to be. So I think, you know, looking at building for the future, we're going to have to build people that can come in, get educated, and then be productive. Right, right at the moment, we have not enough people to do that. These are sobering thoughts. It's, it's good to see you and uh, always leaving me a lot to think about. We're talking today on the Common Bridge about supply chain, including labor supply, uh, international policy, and the economy. With our expert, Mr. Bill Michaels, please look at his entire biography uh, on Substack.com and at RichardHelpy.com. Of course, you can find us also on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app. And so with our guest, Bill Michaels, this is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved.